tell me what you actually see. And that's what culture is. It's, it's what's rewarded, it's what's challenged, but, but it's what becomes habit. You know, what are the habits in your business? That's what your culture is. Hi there, I'm Holly Ransom and welcome to Coffee Pods. It's time to fire up your day with some fuel for change. We run on a simple hypothesis here, that the humble act of grabbing a coffee with someone inspiring is all that it takes to tap into your ability to go out and be the change that you want to see in the world. Coffee Potters, this week our coffee date is with a legend of the AFL. I'm talking about the premiership winning coach with the Sydney Swans and more recently the coach of the Melbourne Demons, Paul Ruse. Paul is a pioneer uh, when it comes to mindfulness within the world of footy. He's big on self-awareness, empathy, and changing up the way that we lead. In this conversation, we're going to talk about culture. We're going to delve into day-to-day habits that can supercharge action. And we're going to get a really interesting insight into what makes an elite coach tick. Here's Paul. Paul Roos, thank you so much for making the time to join us on Coffee Pots. I'm very excited. Thank you very much. Holly. I've been pumped for this conversation because I've followed your career for a very long time. Uh, and you've played footy with a few mentors of mine back in the day too. I wanted to ask, you know, you growing up, was the aspiration always to play AFL? Was that the, the reason for being? Not really. It was funny. I mean, when you think about role modelling and that, you, you look at your parents back then, you know, parents and footy coaches and all that sort of stuff. I think because my parents were very sporty, I just started playing sport. And that was the thing you did in the, the 70s anyway. I mean, you spent your whole time outside, you spent your whole time kicking the footy, playing basketball, you'd get home from school and you'd just go sport, sport, sport. But, but it, I, I didn't really think I'd ever play AFL footy. It was just something I loved actually doing. And because I had active parents and because I lived in a new area out in Donbar, which was all orchards and creeks and all that sort of stuff, you just spent your whole time outside yep. and you bounced around from tennis. You know, we did tennis, basketball, football. But it probably really wasn't until I got asked to go down to Fitzroy that you really even thought about it. It, was just, it really was just your lifestyle mm. of what you did back then. So we often talk about how sport's sort of a religion in Australia, um, for the want probably of a better term. What was the culture of sport like then when you joined it and when you, you your playing career? When I look back, I'm really lucky. And I think it really shaped um, everything I sort of stand for as a person and, and as a coach. But I didn't know it at the time. So when I went down to Fitzroy in the under-19s, Back then, you went with your mates anyway, so you, it wasn't like now when you get drafted. You already had a connection piece, so there was already a connection okay. of guys that played with each other and against each other in the local footy team. So we jumped in a taxi, you know, from school, and we we caught a taxi down to Fitzroy together, and and then we worked out pretty quickly on the way home that the taxi driver was happy to drop into McDonald's and put the McDonald's on the <laughs> taxi account, so we got free McDonald's on the way home. Very clever. Yeah, so it was really clever. But what I realised. And I found that I was really fortunate when I look back on it, more so than I knew at the time, is, is what great role models I had. So the senior players at Fitzroy were just just great people, like Bernie Quinlan, Gary Wilson, Laurie Serafini, Mickey Conlon, really good people. So the, the environment that they created was, was so positive for me, both the way we trained and the way we behaved off the field. And, and there was so much accountability from the players, not necessarily the coach. It wasn't like Wolsey wasn't, a disciplinarian but we had so many players at that particular time it was and we we're all part-time so it was really up to the players themselves to to discipline each other and to say what's acceptable and to watch each other uh, they trained so hard and they were actually really so respectful off the field when we when we went away and and I was really really lucky at the time and I, and I know players who went to other clubs had vastly different experiences so the fact that I went to Fitzroy 
uh, you know, I, I just I just feel so blessed to be have gone to that footy club. You say it was really quite pivotal to shaping your character. What what are kind of the core tenets, I guess, that you developed during that period that have held you in such good stead? What are your core beliefs? Yeah, well, I, I think there's a couple of a couple of really pivotal stories that I, I still remember and I relay. And I remember that there was sort of no such thing as a as an off night at Fitzroy, like it was sort of, you get your sheet of paper and, and the coach would tell you to do something and, and the fitness guide. But what I noticed, I said, gee, we've got so many players here that, that work so much harder than what's expected of them. And that's one thing that, that really stood out for me, that it, it drive your own career. Don't just let people tell you what to do. If you want to be really good at something, you've got to drive your own career. And I remember even going away on, on footy trips and, and back then, I mean, I'm 55 and I'm talking in the early 80s, there was no mobile phones and, and there's, I'm sure there's behaviour that most people look at and, and they find, why did that go on? But our system was different, you know, it was, it was really interesting that the, the mentors, you know, Peter Francis and Lee Carlson, I remember going to Hawaii and, you know, we, we, we would generally, most clubs would get up and start drinking at 10 in the morning, no matter where they were in the world. It was like, but we would sort of go sightseeing all day and then we'd meet together as a, as a group at around five, six o'clock at night and then we'd start having our drinks and all that sort of stuff. So it was, it was a real connection piece, but, mm. but there was real expectation, even in, if you want to call them the worst moments of human behaviour, which is a footy trip on a, you know, back in the early 80s, there was still real checks and balances around the way we were supposed to behave. So they're probably the main things that I thought about, that our guys were really role models and they were really aware all the time of driving their own careers. But how we behaved was really important to, to Bernie and Gary and Laurie and, and Ross Thornton and Peter Francis. And when I looked at them, I was just like, well, if that's the way they're gonna behave, then that's the way I'll behave. And I think, that's what I talk about role models now as um, leaders as role models. You know, if you're in any sort of leadership position, you know, my advice to you is take your, you know, your, your name off your business card and put head of, you know, head role model or whatever it might be, because that's instead fun. Of CEO, instead of CEO or whatever, chief role model, you know, because fundamentally that's what I learned when I was a young player going to, to Fitzroy and it, and it carried through my whole career and then carried into my coaching. And I love that focus on behaviour too because I think it's very easy to talk this stuff and to the point you make, if you're a role model, you've got to live it because people are watching and that's the line share of what people will follow. It's like, you know, do do I follow what you say? Do I follow what, I, what you do? Of course I'm going to follow what you do. Well, and that's right. It's, it's interesting now doing working with the, the business I'm running now, Performance by Design, and, and there's always a red flag. You know when a company's really serious about it because you're, you're sitting in front of the CEO or you're sitting in front of the... Yeah, the head of the department, and this, and when you say to them, "Look, yeah, this is the way we're going to set up," and they said, "Yeah, that's fine. I'm, I'm in." Mm-hmm. When they say, "Yeah, look, I, I can't really make that meeting, but can you, yeah, that team underneath me, can you set their behaviours and their standards?" And you know, it's not going to work because, you know, you've got to have alignment throughout the whole organisation, and whether they like it or not, it, it, it's the the junior people are looking to the senior people how they act, how they behave, and one of the really cool things that we do is we generally ask the, the person in the room. It's been there the, the least amount of time. Well, what do you see? Mm. Don't tell me what's on a wall. Don't tell me what the values are or the purpose is. Tell me what you actually see. And that's what culture is. It's, it's what's rewarded. It's what's challenged. But, but it's what becomes habit. You know, mm. what are the habits in your business? That's what your culture is. What are your core habits that you found have been fundamental to your success, both as a player but then in, in coaching and business beyond that? Yeah, look, it's probably vast, but I try and keep it 
relatively simple. I think communication is a, is a big thing. I think if you want to be a leader, it's, it's exhausting. I say this all the time, and I've been to a couple of conferences and I, I speak at them and I listen, I love going to them. And what I like to say to people is don't think being a leader is easy. I think sometimes we, we put up on the board and we go, bang, bang, bang. Oh, yeah, I can do that. That sounds... Yeah, these three bullet points. Yeah, these three like bullet that. points. You know, here's our business plan and you can run that. And, yeah. you know, we talk about, you know, competency and char- character. It's exhausting. You know, if you're going to be a good leader, you have to invest in your people yeah. and you have to communicate with your people. You have to give to your people. And I remember Rossi Lyon, who coaches Freo and was one of my assistant coaches, coached St Kilda before that. And he funny, he rang me one day after he got the St Kilda coaching job and he goes, mate, he said, I want to apologise. I said, what are you apologising for? He goes, mate, I didn't realise if I walked into your office that you'd had 10 people come in before <laughs> me and then five people come in and after me. And now when he was coaching, he has perspective. I said, mate, it is, it's exhausting. You know, I always joke about it. People say, you're going to coach again. I said, yeah, if the players don't turn up, it's a great job. But the problem is the players turn up every day. But you and have to... Yeah, media, else. yeah. But you have to invest in people. You have to be prepared to communicate. You have to be prepared to build relationships. Um, that's one thing. And being honest, I think that's the other thing. You know, like obviously as a leader, sometimes you're going to have to deliver uncomfortable you know um, feedback but if you've got a clear set of guidelines and a clear set of behaviors then the feedback is not as uncomfortable I talk about people acting their way out of into a system mm-hmm. or acting their way out of a system and that's fundamentally what we set up at Sydney and that's what we, we, we started to create at Melbourne and goodies continue with that what are the clear set of behaviors what, what are your expectations build relationships give people an opportunity to do it communicate help them be honest with them and they'll act their way in Mm-hmm. or they'll act their way out. So if you get the system right, it, it drives itself, mm-hmm. but they probably the, the two key messages are invest and communicate, and the second one is just be honest. One of the things I find fascinating about your career is you grew up in an era of footy where we had a lot of command and control style of coaches, right? I'm thinking like Parkin and Wolsey and Dennis Pagan and kind of these bark, like military general style, give you a good spray at halftime, whether you're up or you're down, to be perfectly honest. And then when you were in at Sydney, you started pioneering mindfulness and this whole new approach to connection that at the time copped a lot of media cynicism and attack going, what's he doing? He's making it all soft. That's not footy. I'd be fascinated to hear a little bit about what you learned from those experiences, those early coaches, but the choices that you intentionally made to coach differently. Yeah, it's a good question because uh, I talk about Parker and Wolsey and my coaches and, and I hope they don't take offence and I know they don't because... They just didn't have time. I mean, we're talking about a part-time environment where we would go to training at six in the morning, we'd come back at five at night. Wolsey was a school teacher, Parker was a lecturer. So really it had to be top down because mm-hmm. we didn't actually have, they didn't have an opportunity to gather us together and talk about behaviors and build relationships. You know, we'd, we'd most folks would get there at 4, 4.30, drop their bag, put their clothes on, run out, train, jump back in the car, drive home. The best thing about the mobile phone when it got invented, I'd one was a real estate, selling real estate, was to order the pizza and the pasta on the way home, you know, because you'd, you'd pick it up and you'd literally get it at 8, 8.30. You'd go home, you'd eat it and you'd go to bed. So I, I, I'm very respectful of them as coaches. But, the, but towards the end of my career, I, I just sort of started to think, why aren't players more involved in the decision-making process? Why is it this top-down approach? You know, I understood from a time point of view, but as we moved into the full-time environment, 
I became full time as a player in '95 when I went to Sydney. Still quite recent history. Yeah, it's it? very recent. Yeah. So prior to that, again, it was just more of a time thing because um, I learned so much off all my coaches. But then I started to think, well, if we've got so much more time, how do we do it differently? Probably one of the biggest things I did was write down the, the things I liked about my coaches, the things I didn't like about my coaches, and I really encourage that for the corporates. You know, if, if you're a leader now, write it down. Be really honest. What did you like about your leaders? What didn't you like about your leaders? Because habits. Some of the things on your list? They're really simple. Some of them are really simple because, and I did it because I wanted to keep. If I didn't know I was going to coach, but I wanted. What I found is the longer coaches had been out of playing, the more disconnected they were, and the less empathy and the angrier, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, they they get. There's more distance. So I, I really wanted to keep that. Um, closeness between myself and the players if I ever did coach. So I really wanted to write it down from a player's point of view. What yeah. was a player seeing at the time? And I did it in October 98 after I retired. And they're really sort of simple things. Players don't mean to make mistakes. So if you think about that, and I had it, I had it on my desk for eight and a half years at Sydney. It was the first document I pulled out when I um, started Melbourne. If you don't have anything positive to say, don't say anything after a game. So more the pressure times in business or in footy, you can imagine how pressurized it is in a footy club, but it's similar to business. So in those moments, what is that employee thinking when you've just lost a huge deal, a big sales thing or whatever, you've just come out of a meeting and someone's made a bad mistake, put yourself in their position. Don't just have this you know, natural human reaction of anger. Well, why do we lose a game or what? Mm. So they're two that really sort of stuck out for me. The, the coach will drive the environment and the coach's energy will rub off on the players. That's another really yeah. important one. You know, you can imagine what it's like coming in Monday, particularly at Melbourne when we, we didn't have a lot of success early. You know, it was really incumbent on the leader to be positive, you know. And I remember Nathan Jones a couple of times we lost and he'd, he'd be, you know, upset and cranky in the hallway. I said, mate, don't worry about it. Everything will be fine. I wasn't 100% certain, but... But you've got to... So people take their tone from you, don't they? Exactly. And that was a really big one. But they're really simple ones. And I, and, I, and I found they were so valuable in order to pull myself back consistently. And what I say to leaders all the time is if you, if you, if you don't have to make decisions under pressure, don't do it under pressure. Mm. Go in your office, sit down, have it. a think about it. And, you, and the biggest thing for me was coming from the coach's box, you know, you've got about four or five minutes to get to the rooms after the game. And I've seen relationships just destroyed in that period of time. Really? Oh, absolutely. In that four or five minute window? Oh, and into the rooms and it's just started. You know, the coach just goes off his head and you can't take back those words. And I'm sure it's the same in business. You know, people listening to this going, yeah, I remember doing that. I wish I hadn't. It's hard to take back. So there's just that ability to hold myself accountable to that when mm-hmm. write it down was really, really valuable. And the other one, in the empowerment model, again, I sort of thought, well, why, why aren't players more empowered to make decisions? I understand, particularly in the early 80s when I was playing and late 80s, there just wasn't enough time. But yeah. now we've got this time piece. How do we get players to create you know, their environment? So we really started that. And I think that was the biggest change in football. You know, the really good footy clubs of which you're seeing now, we just don't. We just don't talk about it. We, we, we walk the walk. You know, yeah, we're we, doing it. we do it. You know, we set standards, we set behaviors, we, we get the players to pick their own leadership groups out of that. And I think Stewie Maxfield and the Swans were the pioneers in doing that. Yeah. You know, just picking a different type of captain that came through that model. The players picked the leaders. We, out of the, the leadership group, picked the captain. And I think that's a significant change now. If you look at the captains post-Stewie and, you know, this is not any disrespect to them, but in terms of talent, they wouldn't have been the best two or three. Stewie was probably in our best sort of 12 or 15. Then you had, you know, Tommy Harley and Cameron Ling and Darren Glass and Nick Maxwell and, you know, 
Good leaders, great leaders, mm-hmm. because they were behavioural based. They were prepared to drive their teammates and hold them, their teammates accountable. So I think football has been a really good um, symbol of how things can change and change significantly in a really top-down environment and a really blokey, matey environment where traditionally it was the players here and the coaches here. And if anything happened within the player group, which is we did not tell the, the coaches we went out too late on a Saturday night. Now it's the players holding themselves accountable. And it's a massive change. And, and then the leadership, as I said, of the players now is, is so different to what it was you know, in the early 80s. You mentioned that stress uh, piece, you know, you're like walking down, you've just lost a game, maybe significantly, you're furious, things didn't work on field the way that you trained all week for it. How, as you said, you know, there's there's an awareness, uh, even going into that, you're conscious of it, that the way I show up here is going to make a difference to how relationships play out, how the team respond. That's easier said than done, though. How do you, in, as a coach in those moments, as a leader under pressure, actually kind of catch yourself or change your energy state so you can show up differently when you've got all that charge and emotion walking in with you? Yeah, I think the staying present, and I started meditating like years and years and years ago. Tammy will know the date sort of thing. but And I think it's more other people observing it because what people say about me that I'm naturally calm, and I think you have a certain personality, but there's no doubt that meditating five, six times a week. And I think it's in those moments just bringing your awareness into yourself and and being self-aware, being aware of the impact you're going to have on people, I think is really important, particularly for leaders. But you you need something to be able to do that, and I think for me it's it's I think I'm naturally that type of person, but certainly the meditation is is no doubt helped because as you said, how do you start to think clearly? Yeah, when you're six goals down yeah. and the crowd's going nuts and you've walked from the coach's box and you've walked on the ground and grand final 2005, 2006, mm-hmm. when it's level at three-quarter time. So you need the tools to be able to do that. And I think the next level of where we're heading as leaders is, is having to be more aware of, of the impact on others. Mm-hmm. But how do we look after ourselves? If we can look after ourselves better and have a greater understanding I read this great quote recently, my health will determine the health of the business, you know, which mm. makes sense. But a lot of these sort of common sense things tend to get thrown out of the window when we get into a football setting, a corporate setting, because it's about finals, it's about budgets, etc., etc. So I think the ability to, to make sure you are looking after yourself, make sure you're turning up really healthy every day, make sure you're turning up mindful every day and, and with great presence, that helps, you know. So yeah. you've got to practice. It's like anything; you can't just hope it's going to happen. Yeah, you know, I hope you walk through the door and hope under pressure. I, I perform. work really yeah. perform. It's like someone running a marathon and going, "Oh, I can I can do that? I'm not going to train for it, but 42 k's that sounds okay. Oh, yeah. I, can I, I can get through that." So you run your 42 k's and it takes you 10 hours and 12 minutes, and someone yeah. else has finished in two hours and 20 sort of thing. So it's the same principle, you yeah. know. I think then this notion of, of redefining leadership is something I'm really passionate about and giving leaders really good tools to to be able to firstly impact themselves and and go to work but clearly a leader by definition is going to have a a huge impact on on the whole workplace you know so if if they're really in a really good space and 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 healthy and mindful and 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 well versed in what they do it can only help the the Mm. the whole um organization I'm a a student of sport in many ways because I think there's so much we can learn from sport that applies to life and to business and the like. And one of the things I've often thought about with coaches like yourself is 
the loneliness that comes with being at the top in many ways and also the scrutiny. I mean, it blows my mind in the AFL that we have more journalists covering mm. AFL than politics in this yeah. country. I yeah. mean, it, it tells you where, our, where you know, probably where, where the state of affairs is. But there's so much scrutiny and pressure and arguably now in 2019 more so than there ever has been. And I'd be interested even for the contrast between your time at Sydney and your time in Melbourne. The resilience required to get through that. How do you stay true to your guns when people are calling for your head or questioning the way that you're doing things or you're not quite seeing the results in the timeline you'd hope for? How did you kind of steal yourself? What support structures did you build yourself, uh, build around yourself to help you get through that? Yeah, I think I think your team is really important. And again, the messages as we're talking through them, I mean, they're, they're so similar to corporates at footy, but your, your team is really important. You know, having a, a great team around you. I think this notion of just picking a coach and thinking everything's going to be fine just yeah. doesn't work. You know, a lot of responsibility. Yeah, a lot of responsibility. Oh, let's pick a new captain and everything's going to work. So you've got to have a great team around you. And I think that that's a really big part. I was really fortunate at Sydney to have a really good team, guys that were honest with me, but guys that I consider friends, but not friends to the point that it's just me telling them what to do. That So having really good communication. I think people outside the footy club are really valuable. Um, I, I think that's really, really important. We talked about you know, the, the wellness component, which is, which is huge. I think then the other tips that, that I would say to people is, because some th- things I've heard, which probably disturbed me a little bit, is oh, I haven't been on a holiday for X amount of time. And don't see it as a badge of honour. Just mm. the, No one's indispensable. No one... Or should be, for that matter. You should be. You're yeah, right. No if if you be. are, then you, you, you've got the wrong system. So I think for me, going overseas every year was really helpful to put into perspective what I was doing because because what you said, Holly, is right, is we get so caught up in how big footy is. Go overseas, go to America. AFL football is not very big in America. So I think the ability to extricate yourself from whatever you're doing and then to be able to look at it from a different perspective, I'd encourage people to do that. Whatever, take a holiday. Take, go somewhere without a mobile phone. Go on a safari where you can't actually, you know, you're looking at elephants and cheetahs and lions and, and you've got no outside influences. And again, we, we, we talk a little bit about being present, you know, like... This ability to be present is really, really important and putting into perspective exactly what we do. As hard as it was, I think the biggest thing that I found is that having written down those 25 points, I guess one of them was remember it, it's only a game of football. You know, now it's hard to, to do that. You know, I mean, I spoke to a group at um, a hospital that were like worked in intensive care. I said, guys, you, you're far more important than what we are. You, you are literally dealing with life and death every day, every single day. So I think it's the ability to really understand that self-awareness piece is really important because as, and, and I know, you know, with, with Sydney winning a premiership in, for 72 years was huge. It was, was massive for people. There's oh, no, yeah. there's no question about that. But equally, I know in, in the context of what's happening in the world, it's relatively small. So we, we've got to make sure we, we understand what our function is and what, what's really important and do the role to the best of our ability. And, and going to Melbourne was similar. I understand the pain that Melbourne supporters were going through and the investment I had to put in that football club. But still, you know, there's, there's a lot more important things going on. So... I think the, even the ability to think about that at times, you know, when we're getting criticised at, at Sydney, you know, in 2005 that we couldn't win a premiership and obviously going through, you know, poor performance at Melbourne week after week in my first year, I think you've still got to put it, be able to put it into perspective what you're actually doing 
And I think that's a, a, a really important part of, of, of life as well. Now, that's, as I said, it's a lot harder if you are totally. have lives in your hands and we probably need to wrap ourselves around those people more, mm. policemen and teachers and nurses. And I mean, we are in footy, we're so held on such this pedestal where we, we shouldn't be, but the reality is that's, that's what happens. I read a quote recently that says, we don't rise to the level of our goals, we fall to the level of our systems. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and I wanted to ask you about that in the context of Sydney because... Um, you know, a club that obviously experienced an extraordinary moment of success at the grand final, but a period of success. Yeah. They've been an unbelievably successful football club for, you know, over a decade now, well and truly. And one of the things I know that you were so intentional about as a coach there was this notion of we're here to create better people. We yeah. want them to leave our club a better person. We've got a no dickheads culture. You're quite famous for some of these cultural bedrocks you made. I think it's very easy for people to focus on the premiership that's what we're about that's the goal we have we have lost every year that we don't win a premiership yeah. right we failed versus this notion of actually what are the systems that we're building in because if we do that right we believe we'll get the success rate and we'll ultimately achieve the outcome yeah i talk about process and outcome i mean i think so many people are so outcome focused but we really did focus on the process at, at sydney that that was a huge part of what we did and I can't, I can't remember. I mean, you'd have to have a player, but I'm not even really sure we spoke a lot about winning a premiership or we spoke a lot about, you know, playing finals. But I guarantee what we spoke a lot about is what makes a good day, what makes us a good team. And we just did that consistently, both from a team point of view, individual players to coaches, standards, week in, week out, day in, day out. And I, and I firmly believe that if you get that part of it right, then clearly the outcome is going to look after itself. But if you focus too much on the outcome, then it's really easy to lose your way because you you tend to look at this goal and, and then you tend to lose faith or trust. And I think that was the biggest difference between Melbourne and Sydney. I think that the Melbourne players were so outcome focused because they'd been beaten so often. It was so easy to look at the scoreboard and get deflated. And, and you could see their body language. You could see it happening in real time. You know, And one of the things I used to joke to the players about, I think they got sick of hearing it, I said, there's someone in the scoreboard that's going to turn the score over. That's his job. You don't have to worry about it. So you don't even have to worry about it. The scoreboard will look after itself. All you can worry about is when we kick a goal, they kick a goal. Where do I have to stand? What does the ruckman have to hit it? Mm -hmm. What do I need to do? But they were so outcome focused. And the difference in Sydney was that relatively quickly we were able to establish a clear understanding of what I needed to do. And then once you get that done, which you touched on before, if you can get your behaviours really embedded and cemented and, and, and as well as that, the technical component of whatever business you're in, so there's the behaviours and the, and the technical KPIs, get them embedded really, really quickly. Through that process, you will create some systems and processes which will hold you accountable and allow you to do that on a daily, weekly basis. Get that right and everything will look after itself. So at Melbourne, we had to spend a lot more time just understanding what the behaviours were, working with the leadership a lot more closely, showing the vision a bit more clearly in terms of that. So we, we were able to do it over, you know, we, we went from four wins to seven wins to 10 wins and we're able to change. And, and obviously with Simon last year playing the preliminary final, which was huge. It just depends on where you started. But you have to, in order to get that long-term success, mm -hmm. I talk about talent-based teams versus behavioural-based team. 
If you want to be a talent-based team, that's fine. You'll win when you've got talent. If you want a behavioural-based team, you'll win all the time. It doesn't mean you're going to win a premiership every single year. But you'll be in the race. But you'll be in the race. You'll yeah. give yourself a chance. Geelong and Hawthorne and Sydney and you know, yeah. probably the three best examples of, of, of behavioural-based teams where they're able to stay at the top in a system that yeah. says you can't stay at the top. You've got a salary cap and, and you've got a, on a, yeah, you've got a draft. Yeah, it shouldn't be doable, right? It shouldn't be doable in yeah. AFL football. So... It's a really good point and it's something that I'm really passionate about. I think if you do get your behaviour right and you're able to just drum it into your people over and over and over again, then your, your outcomes will look after itself. How do you take people on that journey who struggle to join the dot there? Because I feel like, and this is something you see in business too now, you talk a lot about the role of purpose, behaviour, culture, these things that people go, yeah, yeah, but it's easier if I talk KPIs and targets and it, it, it's so much more tangible, people can focus on it easier. And I'm thinking about, you know, that's the, the real roll up your sleeves work, getting in there and doing the process stuff. But fans, media, board, very difficult sometimes to get them to be patient and go on the journey. I'm thinking now even about companies who are saying it's not all about shareholder return. It actually, we need to think about our employees or our community or what have you. What did you learn about how to take people who don't sort of see the world that way on that journey? Yeah, it's a good question. It is difficult because yeah. a lot of particularly what the, Particularly what I've noticed, not all of them, but I mean, we are a people business in footy. So we only have people. So even bad footy clubs do it reasonably well. Mm -hmm. There's still a big gap between a bad footy club and a good footy club. I think when you get into the corporate world, it it is very, very easy to get caught up in in the budget or in the KPI or, or et cetera, et cetera. And that's why I think I'm so passionate about this leadership model. If you get a leader that, that gets it and understands it, you can transform your company really really quickly but you have to invest in it you have to be prepared to it's interesting some of the things that I I talk about is you can't just put a building up and a sign on the building with a name and think you got a team it just doesn't work like that and the number of people that I speak to and they say look we want you to talk about team and I'll say yep no worries and depending on the size and where it is and I'm sure you have the same issues and I say look how often you get together oh once a year like (laughs) so even that concept is really foreign to me and, and I find really, really strange. Mm-hmm. You have to invest in it. Now, now again, through our processes of defining your behaviours and finding your purpose and values, we will challenge you to how do we actually put processes in place? Is it once a week where we have to get together as a leadership team and we have to put up on our board, right, here are our behaviours, guys, give yourself a tick, give yourself a cross. So it's not that complicated, but I think it, probably it's become overcomplicated in in a corporate sense, oh, it's too hard. No, it's not. Just let's let's, let's put together. Let's make it simple. Let's, yeah. let's have an hour a week. We get together at eight o'clock on a Wednesday morning as a leadership group, and we simply go through our behaviours and we tick and cross. Mm-hmm. And if you get too many crosses and you hear, you know, crosses every month, well, you probably shouldn't be here. But then we'll educate you on how you actually change your behaviour, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's just an investment. Anything you want to improve, you have to invest in. And mm-hmm. really good footy clubs just invest in it. They simply invest in it over and over and over and over again. And again, I think corporates are really starting to get it and really starting to understand it. But the the exciting thing for me, and I'm sure for you, is in this this change space. How do we start the next generation of leaders to start the day with? A gratitude piece walking into their board meeting you know the, the a five minute meditation or a breathing exercise can you imagine that would change yeah. corporate culture in an instant completely yeah. a shout out right i wouldn't give a shout out give a shout out to someone in the room to start the meeting what they did really well last week oh i'd like to thank holly she went out of her way to help me you know that behavior of you know delivering on your word was fantastic just imagine how we we would mm-hmm. we would be able to change 
by doing those sorts of things that are really, really simple to do. And I, and I think the more you simplify it, obviously the easier it is to do it. Completely. I want to ask you about your relationship with Tammy. Um, you've described her as your spiritual advisor. One of the things I love about the two of you is how intentional you've been about the relationship you've built together. You collaborate in business now. What is it that she's taught you? Um, I, I think culturally, probably the biggest thing, it's interesting with my boys, and I've had a lot to do with um, um, what's a real man, fatherhood. I think there's this real um, movement about that positioning in Australia. I think as a as a guy growing up in um, Australia, you know, as I did, and then, you know, in the early 80s, the old joke about the barbecue, the guys were around the barbecue or around the pool table and the girls were in the kitchen, mm -hmm. you know, just talking or cooking or whatever it is. I mean, I think that's just the way we sort of lived back then. It wasn't like we thought it was right or wrong. It was just what we did. Mm -hmm. I think the first thing going to America and, and understanding, I don't even think it's a notion of equality because I don't think at all we thought about it is inequality in Australia. It was just... It was just what, consciousness it, yeah, it was just what yeah. we did. So I think the first part of it was going to America and seeing the way human beings interacted rather than a group of men and a group of women at a party sort of thing. I think that was probably the first thing for me to go, oh, well, that's interesting. I mm. never really thought about it in those terms. And I guess through that idea of, you know, yeah, because Tammy, I remember Tammy saying to me at one stage, Oh, do you have any girlfriends? I'm like, nah. You know, she was like, oh, I went to the movies the other night with such and such and Eric. Or, I'm like, oh, that's why sort of thing. <laughs> so it was, just, it was just sort of fascinating. And I think through meeting Tammy, I think meeting like someone of the opposite sex that was generally your best friend was like really interesting, like really unique. It would just, and again, it's not, I don't want to make it sound like, it was just the way it was, and anyone listening out there that um, grew up in that generation would have the same thoughts. So thankfully, we've evolved significantly. When I look at the way my boys are now, it was. But I guess meeting your best friend who happened to be the opposite sex was quite wow. This is pretty cool, you know. Like to be able to um, generally want to spend time with someone. Um, and then get married to them and still want to spend time with them. Yeah, and then, <laughs> yeah, which is really, really pretty positive. But, um, and then to have kids and then to want to spend time with your kids and as a family. And so I, I think, I think what did she teach me? Um, she probably didn't intentionally teach me it, but I think just meeting her was, was just a, a real eye opener and obviously a pleasure to be able to do that and to know that you're going to spend the rest of your life with someone that you actually have the same values and that was probably the, the main thing and mm -hmm. yeah the connection piece and and now to be able to do the things we do together and to meet really cool people and to to be involved in an events company which wants to change mm -hmm. you know leadership and wellness and bring that space together and yeah but i mean she teaches me every day and you know but i, I think it was more just meeting someone mm -hmm. that you had such a strong connection with and you know and to be able to spend the rest of your lives with them was probably the, the main thing and i've been lucky enough to spend time with, with both of you and one of the things i'm um sort of conscious of in the two of you is that that you've spent time thinking about what a great relationship looks like and how you be there for one another and i don't feel that's a conversation we have very often I agree. Funny, this work-life balance, I always thought it's a funny term. Like It's almost like, well, I go to work and then I come home. I don't know how you can live like that. And I think we, we really made a conscious decision when I took the coaching job at Sydney to do it as a family, saying, you know, we had the conversation. Boys were really little at the time, probably didn't even really know what they're talking about. But we decided to do it as a family. 
you know. And then when, when I took the Melbourne job, we decided to do it as a family. So I, I just don't like this term work-life balance. It, it's your life. Yeah, it's life balance. Is my life in really good balance? Because I think if we do it the other way, it's, well, I'm at work, um, bang, I've got to go home, mm-hmm. you know, then I'm a different person, you know, and then I go back to work the next day and then I go back home sort of thing. It's like two lives. So I think we just generally want to did, did it together and that enabled us to, you know, it's funny, my boys sort of when I first started the Sydney, oh, you're not going to coach dad by the time I was finished Sydney it's like oh what are you giving it away for you know <laughs> because we made a conscious effort to involve each other and they really embrace the experience so you're right I don't think we talk about it enough and we don't work out how do we integrate the family into the mm. work how life do how do we together? make the decisions together what is it you know and also given the tools to be able to, to do it etc etc so mm. You know, I think for us, it was just conscious that we we did it, we talked about it, we made sure we made time for each other and I was really clear on that. Um, boundaries are really important, you know, saying no to things when you, you know, when you want to spend time with your family. Systems, putting your own systems in place that people quickly understand. Well, I don't, I really don't want to ring Paul at this time because I know he's with his family. Everyone will work around that, you know, and I think saying no is a really important part of getting that life balance right. I like that point. You mentioned mentors a couple of times during our conversation. What's the most powerful piece of advice a mentor has given you? I probably, it's probably more trying to pick things up. I, I think I'm more a watcher and a, a listener rather than, I, I probably never won, not never, but I don't necessarily ring someone up and go, can, can you mentor me? I'm more, let's catch up for a coffee. And I'm more observant and more sort of take into consideration. I was really fortunate. And footy is a great environment, as you know, because it, it actually appeals to you know, every gender, every generation, totally. every social you know, background. I mean, I had Jeff Polites in my coach's box, who was the CEO of Ford Australia, taking notes for me. And I remember thinking... <laughs> How cool is this? You know, this guy runs one of the biggest companies in Australia. Unfortunately, he's passed away. But he was a great mentor just having him there, not necessarily to, to any one particular time saying, have you got any advice to me? And again, I think it gets back to our point before about, you know, the, the, the husband-wife sort of thing. I think if you surround yourself with good people, you get good advice. Mm. You don't actually have to ask them can we catch up for a coffee and can you tell me what you did then or whatever? Mm-hmm. It happens just naturally through the process of having good friends. So I think having good people, good friends. I love how intentional you are about that being a diverse group of people though. Yeah. More than a lot of uh, leaders I meet out there uh, seem to be really mindful of how widely can I pull people? Yeah. I want to have all these diverse inputs that are coming from all different walks of life and backgrounds and ages and whatever. I think that's powerful. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think... I think, again, I always think self-awareness is really important too. I mean, I think if you're a leader, don't think everyone thinks you know everything or don't think you have to know everything. I think that's probably the biggest message, another message I get across. If you get to this position, it's not because I didn't get to become a coach because everyone thought I knew everything. I think I, I, I got to become a coach because people saw things in me that thought, well, we think he might be able to do it. Mm-hmm. And I never thought once I got there that I knew everything. So that's I think why you put your systems in place, that's right? why you put your systems in place. That's why you have your people you talk to. That's why you know when I in nineteen ninety eight, when I went overseas and um, lived it with America for ten months, I I went to the Chicago Bulls, Chicago Bears, the Forty Niners. Yeah, I was able to yeah you know, look at Pete Sampras, a mate of mine trained him, but 
just having a really broad view of, of how the world looks and how things are done, I think is really, really important and not closing yourself off to anything. I think you close yourself off a little bit. Um, I always believe things happen for a reason. So if I run into, you know, I think you and I have connected, I absolutely believe there's a reason behind it. But I'm not going to ring you up and say, now, Holly, um, can you tell me about this? I think the relationship it's organic, right? is organic and, yeah. and, and evolved. So then I feel like when we're talking, we're talking because we have a relationship, mm-hmm. you know, that I give something to you and you give something to me sort of thing. So I think, I think you have a really good self-awareness. And when you run into people, oh, can I grab your business card? You know, not because you necessarily think that they're going to give you something, mm-hmm. but it's just because you're connecting with someone for a, a reason other than, what can what can they do for me? And I think Tammy and I have a my, my boys joke that I don't have many friends, but um, thanks guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, they're they're funny, but I think I think I have an ability to understand people and what makes their strengths sense. and weaknesses are, and what makes makes them up. But also, as I said, an awareness that I don't think I know everything, and mm. and I think that I've been able to tap into so many different people in order to understand what good leadership is is all about. Now, Coffee Pods, we're really intentional around people moving from a state of ideas and inspiration to actually taking action. Yep. So after everything you've shared today, if you can encourage our listeners to do anything, what would be the call to action? I think write some stuff down. I think particularly whether you're a leader now or whether you whether you want to become a leader, make take some notes around what you see of your leaders and and, and form because habits are hard to break. Right, so if you're not, if you don't hold yourself accountable once you get to a leadership position, it's really easy to fall into those habits. Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't like, you know, such and such yelling at me or getting sprayed at three quarter time or getting yelled at after the game, but it seemed to work, so I'll keep doing it. Sit down wherever you're at the moment. Just sit down and make some observations around. You know, even even if you're younger, even if you're 16, 17, 18, what what you what are you liking about your teachers? You know, what are you liking about your coaches? You know, even your parents, you know, actually had a good conversation with my son the other day and, and, you know, some of the things he didn't like about how we parented, but but that's okay, that's that's fine because I said to someone about him being a dad, I hope he's a better father than what I was. You know, because if if he's not, then he hasn't learned continuous improvement. So I think that, good way to put it, I think that continuous improvement how do we get the next generation of leaders to be better than what we are? And I think you can only do that by holding yourself accountable because if you don't do that, it's really easy to fall into the trap a player coaches the way I do instead of taking the best of what I do and saying, well, I didn't really like that what Ruzi did. I really like that. But unless you write it down, unless you hold yourself accountable to be able to change that behavior, it's so easy to fall back into that habit. Yeah. So I really encourage whatever generation, whatever you're doing, you write your observations down, write the things that you liked about your leaders, your role models, your teachers, your, your school coaches, and write the things you didn't like about them. So when you're, as you're gathering some information as you're going through, I mean, you and I probably, well, we are similar. We want, what, what's the next generation of leaders going to look like? Are they going to be you know, really emotionally intelligent? Are they going to have great self-awareness? Are they going to have the capacity to build relationships? Are they going to be able to put some really cool mindful health programs in place? And fundamentally, are they going to engage their staff so when their, their alarm clocks go off in the morning, the people are going to be jumping out of bed going, oh, I, can't go. I can't wait to go and work for Holly today. I'm really excited about getting into work. That's 
the way we're going to make change. That mm-hmm. people are really excited about doing what they're doing. So that's what I'd be I'd be encouraging them to do. Love that bit of encouragement, and I love getting to spend time with you. Thank you so much for being so generous with your insights. I know from the the wealth of things you've shared, there are going to be so many leaders out there who've got really pragmatic ideas for how to start changing up their culture, leading in a different way, and even that mindful practice around writing it down more, being more conscious of who you're spending time around and who is inputting and giving you advice, but also that piece around mindfulness that came through really, really clearly. So thank you for everything you've shared with us today. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. I hope you're feeling fired up to be the change that you want to see in the world. I'd love to hear about the impact you're having. So hit me up on social and let me know what you're working on. And if you've enjoyed the conversation, why not keep it alive and share it with someone in your world? I'm Holly Ransom. Let's grab a coffee again soon.